Welcome to We're All Gonna Die and Other Fun Facts, a semi-regular, occasionally amusing, and rarely funny series of conversations on a random topic. This episode is entitled, Dr. Hazel Contains Multitudes, and it is about someone who certainly encompasses uh, academia, specifically the sciences, music, visual arts, broidery, publishing zines, just all all the things that this person does and our guest for this episode is who is someone who knows something about Dr. Hazel and and the way in which she contains multi multitudes and and it's it's Dr. Hazel. Hi, welcome. Greetings. Thank you for having me. Thank you for So I guess maybe I did a very bad job of of explaining everything. Could we could you just say all the things you do? Like is that that's the first interview yeah. question. Yeah. So, let's see. Um, professionally or by trade, and the way that a lot of people know me is, or at least know me at first, um, would be as a botanist and forest ecologist, um, adjunct instructor at multiple schools on those topics, uh, but I also do research on them too. I'm involved with a variety of botanical clubs and um, organizations, and let's see... Um, if the other way that you might know me would be through punk activities, um, mm -hmm. I make zines. I am in a band again as of like a week and a half ago, mm -hmm. and go to shows a whole lot, including random ones out of town quite regularly. And then I also do a variety of other creative pursuits. Um, I plant stuff outside. Do <laughs> you know? I used to work in public gardens. I don't anymore, uh, but I still do gardening as a hobby and a variety of needlework things. Mostly I do embroidery these days. I do crochet too, and sew too, but the embroidery and the adjacent sewing is what takes up most of my needlework interest at the moment. And along with that, I ended up starting drawing again, so I, I draw leaves. And publish zines. And, yeah, and publish zines. And so it's also photography at those shows. True. I don't really consider myself a like real photographer, but I guess you could say that. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, so that's a lot, and and I, thinking about like the energy that that takes and the desire and the effort that, that all that takes, and I guess you know to sort of unpack because we were also talking before in our sort of pre-recording conversation, the way in which all of these things are interrelated. Yeah, very much so. And so I guess the first thing I want to unpack is, and as a fellow academic, the, 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 the draw, the pull, the interest in botany, like how did that, what sparked that, how did, how did you get, what was the magnetic pull, I guess? I so, mean, I have my origin story about English, but... You know. Yeah, the botany origin story, there kind of isn't really one story to it. Basically, from the time I was really young, I was encouraged to pay attention to the world around me and practice mm. my observation skills. And so that really included everything. Um, it wasn't just plants. I went, I, The first real interest that I remember would be mushrooms around mm. the time that I was like three-ish maybe. Mm. And so I had this like a mushroom field guide that I would be looking through and I couldn't read any of it but I would be looking over the photos and symbols and make my parents read me the pages about these different mushrooms over and over again uh, we had a lot of these really cool illustrated uh, children's books with really detailed drawings of like 
hedgerows and forests, and they were full of mushrooms, and I would go through, and I would count the mushrooms, both as individuals and the number of different types of mushrooms. So we could call that my first foray into collecting population biology data sets, in a way. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. So, which I think is fascinating. So, like, what does one learn from a population biology data set? Because you you also publish a ton of research. Yeah, and a lot of it involves counting things. Not mushrooms so much anymore, but um, we count plant stems. We count um, all kinds of other things. And when you count stuff and you know how many individuals of a given species or a given growth form are in a particular area, you can use that to answer so many different kinds of questions. And the ones that I really focus on understanding how modern plant populations and communities develop through time and especially in response to past land use human activity oh yes yeah, so the, so like sl- the slag heap yes um tornado blowdown yes. areas and also, like, for a lot of my research, it's forests that you might walk into now and think it's it's the woods. You know, it's been here forever. But most of the forest in our region has regrown on agricultural land that was cut after European colonization, farmed for a while. Then it wasn't profitable anymore. Nobody wants to work on the farm anymore because it sucks. So you move to cities for industrial jobs. And then the land is no longer farmed, forest regrows, and now we have a lot more forest cover than we would have had 100 years ago. But it's different from what would have been here before the land was cut and converted to agriculture. And that's kind of a central question of a lot of my research, is understanding what kind of legacy effects, as we call them, you would have in these forests that reflect what happened in them over the past 100, 200, however many years. Yeah, I remember hearing that, like, even, you know, I guess even in, what, the earlier part of the 19th century, because, like, just Pennsylvania and hardwood was just such a, like, ooh, hardwood, we can just, you know, make all of these. Uh, there's old pictures of Duquesne's campus of, like, the entire bluff was just a dirt pit. Right. Yeah, that's what huge, huge, huge amounts of the modern forest we have would have looked like a 100 years ago. Um, a lot of them would have been logged, many were converted to agriculture. One of the things that's interesting about our area is that our terrain is really variable and rugged. So there's a lot of spots that were not converted to agriculture. They were just cut and then maybe regrew as forest and were cut again, maybe not. Um, But there's also a lot of areas, especially in flatter, gentler land that were converted to different forms of agriculture. And where you have different forms of agriculture, you have different legacy effects. So if a site was cut and converted to pasturing, there's going to be some differences in the forests that regenerate there as opposed to a site that was cut and converted to row crops. Oh, wow. So is there any true, I guess, true old growth? I mean, is I and also I feel like, you know, because I know about these levels of expertise and stuff, and I'm like, I, I was like, I, I know like five biology terms, and I'm going to throw... Like, and I don't know if this is, is this a real word? Like the idea of an old growth forest? Is there any real old growth forest like in Pennsylvania or in this region? So I warn my forestry students that I don't like that term because okay. it's really vague. Mm. So See, it's there very we go. popularly used, but nobody can really agree on what it actually means because mm. you can't say a forest was never impacted by humans. And that mm. actually, there's a really lot of dark side of like, 
weird um, colonial ideas that permeate a lot of our thinking about forests and the environment in this country and this continent where it's like if it was forest before Europeans got here and then the Europeans cut it it was always forest beforehand and that's not really true and there's a lot of weird ideas about the landscape here being untouched by humans when that's very very untrue so even some of our oldest remnant forests that we have today were certainly managed at some point um, before European colonization and some of the concepts of old growth erase that in ways that are really unfortunate Mm. Um, but there's also from a biological perspective there's ways that forests change through time and we can watch those changes happen but they don't necessarily occur on a given set of years so people will say you know it's old growth if it's 200 years old it's old growth if it's 500 years old it's old growth if it's never been cut and it's like there's no real consistency to that oh wow as far as old forests in pennsylvania there are quite a few that probably have been what i refer to as minimally disturbed in in heavy quotes um, since the time of european colonization um the Cook Forest site is probably the most famous. That is a large collection of hemlock white pine forest that is one of the oldest remnants that we have in the state. But even that, it dates, I think, to the 1600s because it regenerated after some sort of tornado or hurricane blowdown. You can core the trees, see how old they are, look at that age data, and see that if all your big trees in this old forest all date to 16 whatever there had to be something that happened before then to initiate the development of that forest so even in this very old stand there was something that was there before it was this stand that we know of today yeah which makes me think too about how that makes you think differently about time and like non like anthro non-anthropocentric time Very much so. And that's something that we think about in these legacy effects a whole lot, because let's say you have a forest that's 100 years old that regenerated on an abandoned pasture. The trees that are there, I mean, lifespans for a lot of tree species are easily over 100. So the composition of that forest, what species you have in it, how big the trees are, how they're distributed relative to each other, that's all still going to reflect the conditions that were present when that forest was regrowing 100 years ago. So the legacy effects that you see from land use can persist far longer than human lifespans. And one of the papers that I always tell everybody about when talking about land use history um, is from Europe, which has in some regards similar forest history to here in terms of converting to agriculture, widespread abandonment, and now more forests than we had 100 years ago. There's forests in, uh, I believe it was Belgium or France, that somebody did a really awesome study on these old forest remnants and found that there's still legacies in what plants are growing where, influenced by agriculture and settlement patterns at the time of ancient Rome, many centuries, that then converted to forests many centuries before the present day. Wow. Yeah, so that's, that's a long legacy. <laughs> that is a long legacy, and... I guess then the other part about this is for me thinking about as I'm going to throw another term out that I, I learned somewhere. Uh, but, I mean, we're also, I guess, are on the cusp of the Anthropocene. Right. 
Yeah, and that's a real word. Yeah, that's. Oh, a real good. Word. Okay. And, as with everything academic, people argue about it. But yes, it is, of it course. It is a term that seems to be used widespread I, and somewhat agreed upon that it is a term. Yes, I, I tell my lit theory students like this is an ongoing conversation. And exactly. You're joining it. Which is like blowing the like no knowledge is not a fixed thing. We're still figuring stuff out. Um, yes, we have AI. Yes, we have you know the internet, but we're still learning stuff. And so think about what does it mean to be drawn to that work on the cusp of whatever is going to happen next for the planet for well for the planet. Yeah, I think there's a lot of different aspects to that question. Um, one of the characteristics of my work is that some of it does have um, applications in decision-making, um, whether that's habitat restoration or conservation, which obviously conditions are going to be changing a lot, and they are changing a lot. Uh, but some of what I've learned, um, especially some of the more theoretical, like these are the processes that influence regeneration. So now we know that this is a limiting factor that mm. can then um, be followed up by, all oh, right, we know this is a limiting factor in forest diversity. Is there anything we can do to maybe help that along? And that has a lot of applications in times of widespread and very fast change. Mm. Um, so one of the examples of this is uh, in our forests, Trees get all the attention a lot of times, uh, but 80% of the plant diversity is the ground layer flora. So the wildflowers, the ferns, um, the herbaceous layer, ground layer plants. And this is the layer that shows especially strong and long lasting legacy effects of past disturbance, like mm. past agriculture in young forests, especially those that are regenerated on cultivated land. A lot of the species really don't come back for a very mm. long time. So many of our most beloved and um, ecologically important and culturally important in many cases, understory species might still be missing in a forest that's 100 years old on land that was previously cultivated. So things like wild leeks, trilliums, wild ginger, um, mm -hmm. a lot of beloved species. Um, but we know that part of the reason for this is because they just can't get to these sites. Um, a lot of these species are dispersed, their seeds are dispersed by ants or they don't really have a mechanism for moving long distances in short periods of time. So if they've been eliminated from the site through agriculture, it's going to take a really long time for them to come back. But that also could be a, pro a problem that offers opportunities in terms of reintroduction and restoration of these populations. And there's a number of people working on these questions to figure out, you know, can you successfully reintroduce these species and speed up the process? Um, for some species, the answer does appear to be yes. So maybe that could also be applied for um, increasing diversity in young forests, but also for helping species migrate with climate change or um, just increasing the biological integrity of sites that we have that we're stewarding currently where that's been lost. Wow. And so you also have this interest in industrial sites and post-industrial sites, which it seems to be a very Western Pennsylvania right. thing to care about. Which, I mean, what is that? You know, I'm thinking about, yeah, you know, I know you post on your Instagram story, like, pictures of the slag heaps. Oh, yeah. And, <laughs> and uh, even, like, the SEPTA train. Yes. Stuff. <laughs> stuff. 
like what does that look like when you have not i mean at least i i, I in my brain i'm thinking like well at least agriculture there's still dirt there right exactly <laughs> there's still some <laughs> soil there that's been met that has been messed with perhaps but fertilized but it's still soil well there's a term for this um, when you have an urban site where you have say like concrete building, a trash pile, a, a slag heap, which is really just a very large and specialized trash pile. Uh, the term we use for this would be called a novel substrate. So the substrate is whatever the plants are growing in. Soil is a type mm. of substrate. Oh. Slag can also be a substrate. And we call these um, novel urban substrates, novel urban habitats. And there's a lot that goes on in them that's really similar to what goes on on, for example, a lava flow after a volcano erupts, um, similar setting. Um, we call this process of plants establishing on sites that did not have plants or soil previously. Um, it's called primary succession, and that's the fancy name for the process by which different species will come in and colonize these sites, change the environment a little bit. Other species will come in and colonize, um, and then other species will come and you'll get change and development of these communities through time. And one of the things that I like a lot about industrial sites is that you can see these processes happen right in front of you. So at the slag heap, um, the, the story with the slag heap is I, I knew that there were slag heaps here and I wanted to visit them, but I hadn't yet. Uh, in 2020, I finally made it down there and the top of the slag heap is this sort of savanna-like community with all these cool weedy plants that can tolerate very nutrient poor, very hot and very dry sites. If you're going to visit the slag heap, as an aside, I would recommend doing it after 5 p.m. if it's a sunny day because it gets extremely hot up there. <sighs> Plants aren't necessarily happy about that just like humans aren't, so that limits what can grow up there. But there's all of these scattered single trees in the site growing in the savanna. And if you look at the base of these scattered trees, uh, they're all got these clusters of shrubs and vines and other woody plants growing under them that are not growing elsewhere in the savanna. So that's a process called facilitation, which is a positive relationship between plants. So in this case, those trees there, we could call them nurse trees, are allowing the shrubs and other species to grow underneath them because they're either changing the environment by providing shade or keeping the site moister longer, or in some cases facilitating dispersal. You know, birds come and sit in the tree canopy and they excrete seeds that they ate, and then that is a seed source um, for these shrubs, most of which are fleshy fruited and bird dispersed. Um, mm. But these, this facilitation process is something that I'm really interested in, and I've studied it in the context of uh, post-agricultural forests too. So when I saw this, with these single trees very obviously facilitating um, early in the succession process, I was like, I need to work on this. So I oh, went yeah. up there on an afternoon with a bunch of, um, you know, notebooks and, you know, some simple tools for measuring things and counted a bunch of stuff and um, published a paper on it and have another one in the works and some other projects going in there. It just all kind of came together. Wow. Which, so there's a place I almost now I have a question I want to take you to in Nanny Glow, Pennsylvania. Ooh, that sounds good. Which is a, literally Welsh for seams of coal. Yes, awesome. Uh, when I was a college student 25 years speaking of seeing it in real time, now think about when I was in 25 years ago, I was in college 25 years ago, I was in that region and I took 
slides of like when I was leaving, I was like, I'm never coming back to this part of the world ever again, you know, um, which was dumb. But I took slides, and in Nanigo, there used to be the city skyline was a slide heap. Whoa! It was black, and I, I one of the things we started doing during the pandemic was to just get out. Of, this is a very lovely house, but. And it's like, well, we know the mountain and we know places with public bathrooms that we can get to without humans and buying gas without humans and all of that. And we started going and there's a, 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 a rails to trail site. The ghost town trail goes yeah, through. Yeah, I've, I've been on part of that near Indiana. Okay. So further up, if you go past Blairsville, you eventually get to Nanny Glow. And I, I, when we took the road, the back road into Nanny Glow, I thought, well, we're going to see the Black Mountain again. And it was green. And it blew my mind. I was like, I, wait, is it, was it not here? I mean, it actually took me two or three times going to the Ghost Town Trail to go, oh, no, that's the slag heap. There's no, awesome. There's no trees growing on it, but it is green now. Cool. I have pictures of the green. Actually, I'll show you when we're done recording because it, it is like, yeah. That's exciting. Yeah, it's and it it did happen in my lifetime. Yeah. Um, it also like hear you talk. It's so fascinating because I it's like the oh god I'm I'm actually at a loss for words. The wildness of life or the the idea of just life is just cannot be stopped. Right. There's so many different processes and weird things that can happen, and that's one of the things that's really fun about it is that like there's certain certain times things can be kind of predictable. But the motto in ecology is basically it depends because it's, everything is influenced by everything else and it's really just infinite possibilities. That's wild. And to think about then also then your acts of recording. And I think about acts of recording doing scientific research. But then also the, the how that transitions into the art that you make. And... You know, thinking about, and I know, like, maybe the institution I teach at, and Mrs. Isn't this all of academia at this point now? There's, like, the two solitudes. There's, like, science and then, like, whatever the heck everybody else is doing. And that you do both and that there's an interrelation there in terms of, like, when you do do drawings of leaves and you do do embroidery of plant species like leaves and stuff like how that like how those two processes of doing that sort of like hard biological research and art are interrelated yeah and fundamentally a lot of what i'm exploring with both are similar types of questions mm. so in my research zooming out on um, some of the things that interest me most are pattern at spa different spatial and temporal scales pattern in space and time and that's the same kind of uh, patterns and processes that I tend to explore in my embroidery too. So like I'll do um, larger pieces that have a whole bunch of different leaves on them and that relates to some sort of spatial pattern. So like I've done um, gradient pieces where I have a whole bunch of different oak leaves and they're arranged along the type of moisture gradient that you see when you're going up and down a slope where you have certain species at the top that live in the driest areas and then you go mid-slope and you have some different ones and then down at the bottom where it's wet you have different ones so i've done um, large panel pieces exploring some of those environmental gradient and spatial pattern ideas as well as uh, other kinds of relationships in space and time 
Um, a lot of times I'll do pieces with uh, leaves from particular sites, for example. So they might be related to like a particular um, research site or just a particular place and might be exploring relationships between species within that particular place. Um, one of my recent ones that I did earlier this year too was very, very directly intertwined with my research because um, I work with pasture trees in post-agricultural forests. These are large individual spreading trees with branches poking out in all directions in the middle of a forest of dense, small stems. They're also mm. called wolf trees. and. That's something that I study a lot. I co I've collected leaves from all of the wolf trees that I used in my study that I did back in 2018 on them, which is the first single tree ecology study I did, and uh, arranged them into a single piece, um, the embroidered versions of leaves from all of these trees, and it came with a like brochure booklet type thing uh, with portraits of each individual tree and like what species it is and where it's from. Wow, that's cool. And and I guess thinking about punk too, in a way. So in a way, like also in a way this works like, it, so something like Shining Navigation will have images of natural, the natural world, you know, overlacing, uh, you know, or the providing the border for like a picture of the rock room which seems right. like like the most unnatural place on the planet not that there's not life in there happening oh yes <laughs> maybe not that anybody wants to deal with that life but i mean the the way that yeah the way that punk is a reclaiming of is it like i mean it is that the same thing or am i like for you does that feel like sort of the same also part of this formula yeah i feel like there's a lot of similarity and whether it's in terms of like punk uses a lot of the same kind of novel urban habitats that i mm. study um mm. I, when i was in undergrad one of the places that i got really interested in some of these like pattern formation processes was an abandoned court it was a tennis court not a basketball court but mm. so shows that the courts make perfect sense to me yes uh, but also like the, I feel like there is a relationship in a lot of different ways, and there's a lot of these really cool connections uh, between punk and botany and ecology that you might not be aware of on the surface at first, but I've met so many people who do both. And so there, there's a lot of ways and settings in which they kind of really seamlessly blend with each other. And also because like the, the corner of punk that I'm really most in one of the reasons that I felt at home there was because there was this sense of like expressed care for the rest of the world and interest mm. in the rest of the world. And I think that those things fit really well together too. That's, that's fascinating. And I guess like what, in terms of, so like reclaim spaces, care for the world. Um, I guess there's also the, the like, uh, you know, at least what punk is now, or hopefully at its best, what punk is now, like this respect for, I guess, diversity and, and sort of bio thinking bio about biodiversity in the same way. Right. And also just that sense of, like, different possibilities, too. Mm. Because in ecology, there's surprises all the time. You know, some things are roughly predictable, but 
you know, random things are a major part of what's happening, and that's part of the, the fun of it. And also, I feel like with punk when it's at its best, uh, and it is what I think it should be, there's also that sense of, like, we can make things possible. We mm. can do different things. We can have, you know, there's still room for surprises and chaos and all that, and we can apply that, too. Yeah, and I guess, you know, is it also thinking about the way in which the biological reclaiming of spaces and punk also against, you know, as, as a, as a refuge, as a limit, as a bull, I don't know, uh, against, I guess, like industrialized capitalism, which can, I guess, consume us all and kill right. us all. Very true. And also like some of the processes too, I think there's a lot of crossover between. So like, when you have facilitation, uh, a lot of times where that happens is in these nutrient-poor habitats. You know, plants can compete with each other, too. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the relative importance of whether they're competing or facilitating partially depends on, you know, their environment around them. Mm-hmm. So when you're in a desert or a lava flow or a slag heap and you have two plants growing next to each other, it can actually be more advantageous to grow next to another plant because you can facilitate each other. Mm-hmm. Whereas in a nutrient-rich habitat it might be more beneficial to have more space between you. But Mm. I think that there's a lot of parallels there with how we can assemble our own communities. And, Mm. you know, we certainly live in what can be considered a nutrient-poor environment in a lot of ways. Mm. And being close to others and facilitating each other, obviously for us it's more of a choice. But I think that that's something that we could also think more about, you know, how do we do this? It's, if it's good for the plants in these nutrient-poor environments and these slag heaps, like, we could do that too. And I feel like yeah. a lot of these communities that assemble, whether it's punk or a lot of other, like, subcultural and countercultural communities are basically ways of us doing that, whether it's conscious or not. Yeah. Versus, like, you know, Disney World where all the lakes are cleaned by pesticides. Right. And, like, I think of this, too, in the context of, like, the ecology community and the scientific community in general, which can be really competitive and nasty and cutthroat and joyless. And I'm like... Yeah, academia, yes. Yeah, and I'm, and I'm like, we don't have to do this. Like, we can do... We can facilitate each other's growth and interest in these disciplines and research. We don't have to be hyper-competitive and cutting each other down, especially considering we are in, you know, a very nutrient-poor environment in the world of academia and ecology. Like, let's just rethink this whole thing. Is that something that gives you hope? Yes and no. I mean, Mm. in in a lot of ways, it feels like um, a perennially losing battle, but I think the battle itself is important, Mm. even if you don't win. Yeah. I'm trying not to give in to cynicism. Right, exactly. You know what I mean? <laughs> Trying not to give you this both about academia, both about about the Anthropocene, about global warming, about I mean, yeah, thinking about too. I have this like very stalled book project that kind of explores like yeah how even our scope of our imagination has been sort of redefined by the Reagan revolution. Right. And that like really actually other people are the worst thing ever, but also the, the thing that I think we deeply crave more than anything else. 
Right. Which is what keeps me going to punk shows and keeps me, you know, there's a time after my graduate school coursework where I was like around a lot of people and then I wasn't and was just hopelessly depressed for years and years yeah. and years. And then suddenly, you know, the last show I went to, you were one of what, like two dozen people I had to say goodbye to at the end of the night. Right. <laughs> I, was like, I was like, I'm coming home, but I gotta say goodbye to people. This could take a minute. And it was like 30 minutes saying yeah. goodbye. But that was actually so wonderful. It is. It is. And like, it's it's great when it happens like that, too. Because like, I went to um, this fest in the woods in Washington back in August. And it's like, I kind of know a couple people who are going to be here. But I ended up like just meeting so many people and making so many new friends there and everything. And that, that sense of like possibility and... You don't already know everything that's going to happen. You know, there's there's yeah. still room for all kinds of, like, exciting, new, happy things, even though life sucks a lot of the times, so I yeah. think is really, really important. Yeah, and I think when that happens in punk, when, like, just something weird happens or something funny happens or... You know, I think back to that no time... I'm going to screw up the French. Squiet, squiet, squiet. Brenda. I mean, just everybody, at the end of the night, it was like the skinhead show. And everybody was laughing. Yeah. That Every, was so fun. That was so fun. And I was like, I, I just, I do songs, but these bands are going to be aggressive and it's going to be good. And then everybody was just full of joy by the end of the night. Like, we were just like bumping into each other in the mosh pit, falling down and still laughing on the floor and... Yeah, yeah, that was awesome. That was like that one of my was... favorite shows I've been to this year. Definitely, definitely. And yeah, I don't know, life is a thing, isn't it? For sure. Sorry, that was my, that was my my. So let's go to the rundown. So okay, so Shiny Navigate. So how do people find out about stuff and things and? follow you because like you just do fast I, I always look forward to every issue of Shining Navigation so what is actually I'm talking about what is Shining Navigation it's a zine I do that's a photo zine it's, there's no writing in it um, I write a lot in every other format era of you know aspect of my life so after I've been reading I've been writing manuscripts for hours the last thing I want to do is write a zine too mm. so both the zines I've done have just been strictly visual show photos and like decorative stuff uh, this is the one that I do that comes out roughly every other month. It's like one large page that you fold out and look at. And I actually started doing zines as kind of an outgrowth of doing flyers because I really, really liked doing cut and paste flyers. Mm. I didn't get to do them very often. And I'd always kind of thought, oh, you know, maybe I'll do a zine sometime. And then I started doing it and it just became like a regular part of life. Um, I started doing it when I lived in Athens, Ohio for grad school. I did a different zine in a slightly different format with a different name. And then I moved up here and decided to switch formats and names and switch to the single fold-out page instead of half-size multiple pages because it's cheaper. Yeah. So I can just, like, leave them around and let people take them. I don't have to be like, can I please have a dollar to recoup my printing costs? Because the printing costs are, like, manageable. Yeah. So this this that. There is... So you've joined Weaponized Existence. As of, like, a week and a half ago. A week and a half ago. I Again, you'd post on Instagram about, like, playing bass again and being in a band again. And so, which I guess is, like, isn't it at its best. See, I even hate to call it a utopian vision, but this, like, 
No, it's not atopic. So here's the thing. I, I use this quote a lot. I lean on this quote so much. I said this quote in class yesterday. There's a line in Deep Ecology built by Bill McKibben where he talks about, and you know, McKibben's fascinating because he was like a minister who's now an environmental activist. And he does this like super annoying, amazing thing. It's annoying because I can't do it when he writes that he can like kind of like not on your level, but like kind of discuss the scientific, but then also like sort of the social and the ecological and the sociological and even sometimes the theological all at the same time in the same paragraph. And it's like, how can you do that? How can you do all five things at once in one paragraph? I hate you, Bill McKibben. Though <laughs> Bill McKibben is amazing and he's a really nice guy and he does answer his own emails if you if you email him, him with a question. Like literally, you said something. Where was this source? And he's like, it's on page 36 of. And I was like, thank you, Mr. McKibben. That's you know great. what I mean? It's amazing, you know? And he's like, and I'm in China, <laughs> like looking at what they're doing to their environment. Um, but he said about how, you know, it's like, People, um, maybe because I work on a campus, you know, uh, people hauled the candle for their college years, not because they found their coursework particularly interesting, but it was the one time people, most adult Americans live as people evolve to live, which is on top of one another. That makes a lot of sense. In close proximity of one another. But, you know, we have the modern nuclear family and, and the sort of, he also has the line, it was in conjunction with, thinking about McMansions and somebody saying, um, once we realized we were building homes for people who couldn't stand the thought of living under the same roof, we all got rich. Yeah, that sounds about right. Which is a very unhealthy human thing that does really weird shit to people. Yeah. Oh boy, I could do like a whole nother podcast about all my weird intimate experiences with that exact problem, but I, I digress. Yeah. <laughs> no, I get to, I mean, it's like hell is other people. I mean, I just had a, you know, punk scene friend breakup too. Um, you know, it was weird that happens too, but also then I, I wouldn't give being part of the scene and knowing people and knowing half a dozen people. Um, I don't know if I'm ready to be in a band. I don't think I want to be in a band. My music project is a solo thing. <laughs> Because also it's like, I'm busy and can't have band practice. Yeah, yeah. It's, there's so many different, like, uh, caveats and, like, ways that being in bands can be really difficult. And I think that's part of why I haven't done it as much as I might have liked to. Because, mm. like, finding people that you get along with well enough to be in a band, want to play at least somewhat the same kind of music, have yeah. a compatible schedule, have time, have interest play compatible instruments you know it's it's difficult and the first band I was in was when I was in grad school and it was just like a completely random thing where you had a couple people who were like hey let's play you want to come and I was like all right I'll give it a shot you know and it all worked out and turned into a real band but a lot of times you know you might talk about it with people but it, it never actually happens or yeah. you talk about it for a couple of years and then it actually happens after you've moved away so you can't be involved in it yeah. anymore you know things like that yeah i have two shows myself coming up next month and i haven't touched an instrument since i don't know july right <laughs> but theramonster is totally an active thing <laughs> it's totally a real thing um and maybe i'll 
play that again or I'll touch an instrument again sometime. I guess I have to before the 16th of October. <laughs> At least once. I don't know. But so so there's that. But there's also, yeah, embroidery and drawing too. Like how to, like, because I know you do, you know, you do sell things and, and do punk flea markets and stuff. Is there a way that, what is the, and you do have, um, and I will link them on the website, um, craft specific or art specific, I should say, Instagram accounts. But yeah, so for, I do have a separate account for embroidery stuff, and that is uh, Skunk Cabbage Swamp with underbars in between. Uh, and that's where you can find photos of stuff. I treat it mostly like a uh, portfolio photo dump place. It's not a content mill. I don't post a million stories every day. I post new work on there when it's ready. Mm. The algorithm doesn't like that. You probably won't see it very regularly if you follow the account. So I recommend just like going and looking at stuff mm. uh, more than using it like a typical Instagram account. Uh, just go and like, you know, scroll through, see if you find something you like. I do customs a lot and custom commissions are often my favorite work because they get me out of my comfort zone. Like, you know, all of a list a mile long of like things I might want to embroider. But then somebody asks me about a different species I maybe have never heard of before. And then it turns into a whole fun adventure of like, oh. what is this? How can I translate it to embroidery? You know, like, so that's always super awesome. Um, and the best way to get in touch with me for that would be to just either message me on there or I have a Tumblr for it too, which is um, Allegheny Fever Dreams, all one word. And that's got my email in the bio. So email also works. Sorry. I'm just writing that down so I remember to post that link, which actually now is cool. Spotify lets you hot link. If you put a hot link in a description, people can, when they look at things on Spotify, click on it and go there cool so which is i think a brand new adventure um which reminds me also i, I have those two giant sexy um uh sycamore trees out front <laughs> yes <laughs> which i definitely want i mean i i, I hope I, I hope those trees outlive me i mean in an urban environment that's i think tough but i hope they outlive me um there's tough but not impossible tough but not impossible um, there's actually an area, there used to be on a website, an aerial photograph of all of Pittsburgh. And there's a picture of this house in 1936 and the trees were just babies. On awesome. it. it was so sweet. I mean, they were, they were kind of even with the roof line of the house then. They cool. are not that anymore. Right. <laughs> and I love them so much. Um, even if some of my neighbors don't, I will fight them to keep yes. those trees alive. God That's damn it. That's the spirit. That is the spirit. And you got Pete the pear tree out back and stuff. <laughs> so that's to show you Pete. Um, somehow there's dogs in the way though. Um, but I think, is there anything else I, I forgot? Anything um, you forgot? Oh, I always forget something. Yes. <laughs> I got too much going on. There's always something that escapes. Yeah, which is also, again, you're like, oh, I'm going to go to Philly for this show. I'm going to go to Athens for this show. Or, and, and like, yeah, that's great and amazing yeah. and wonderful. I do go to Athens a lot. Like, there's there's not shows there that often, but I, I managed to catch one on my most recent trip down totally randomly. I didn't even know it was happening until I was already in Athens. And then I saw flyers for it. And... That's one of the things that's fun is when you go somewhere and end up at some event completely randomly that you didn't plan on. And Athens is pretty good for that. There's always some random weird thing happening. Fantastic. I've never been. All right. So I'll have links to all of that. And we're not done yet because it is now time for the bottom five. Bottom five is a series of questions not related to our main topic 
that are of a surrealistic and or philosophical nature. Are you ready? I'll give it a shot. All right, question one. It's the question everybody gets the first time they're on this podcast, which you haven't listened yet, so this is going to be a surprise. But as a biologist, I think you will do well. If reincarnation is real and you had to come back as an infectious disease or illness, what kind of disease or illness would you choose to be? Uh, let's see. There's a lot of interesting plant diseases that are fungi that have weird life cycles. So I'd probably come back as one of them because if you have a weird life cycle where you've got four different spore stages and each stage has a different host, you get to interact with a lot of different hosts. That means different plant species, different environments. So the idea of like hopping around to different places and exploring so to speak as a pathogen sounds like fun that is that is wow everybody else is just like i want to be the common cold or gut bacteria so that's the <laughs> best answer i might have to retire that question of course now. i have to go with a fungus right i have to go with a fungus yeah i don't don't ask me which one i'd have to see which one has the host plants that i like best but one okay. of the ones with multiple hosts okay fantastic fantastic question two which isn't really a, a question but a prompt Tell me a happy but somewhat unremarkable memory of your childhood. Uh, let's see. I spent a lot of time at uh, my grandparents' house, which was in central Pennsylvania, um, in Lock Haven, for anybody who knows where that is. Uh, that was sort of my like second hometown as a kid, because we mm. spent a lot of time up there. And so something that's that I remember very fondly, but it's not exciting to most people, it would just be spending time in their yard. And they had a lot of really giant apple trees. Mm -hmm. And um, we used to like try to climb them unsuccessfully and um, spend a lot of time, you know, picnicking under the shade. Sometimes we would pick up apples. They weren't, you know, amazing, but they were fine. And Ever since then, I've, I've just really been a big fan of seeing fruit trees covered with fruit. I think that brings mm. back some sort of, like, primal early life. Yay, apples! Uh, they, even though, confession, I don't actually like apples that much. I cook with them a lot, but I'm not somebody who's going to, like, pick up an apple and take a bite of it and be like, yes, I love this. It's not a favorite fruit. Uh. But apple trees covered with apples is, like, a favorite sight. Oh, yeah. That is really cool. All right. Question three. This is the Christopher Hitchens question. Because he said in, in Mortality when he realized he was going to die, he said, man, I was really looking forward to reading, I think it was Henry Kissinger and Cardinal Ratzinger's obituaries. And then he said, wait, I wanted to write those. <laughs> so of the living villains of history, whose obituary would you most like to write? Living villain of history. Um... That I honestly have no idea for because I'm not always super aware of who's still living and who's not. Um, let's say, so I went, I, I went on this big like uh, British royal family kick after mm. I watched The Crown because I didn't realize like how ridiculous it was. And obviously with the caveat that that's, that is a drama series, it's not... 100% factual so me being an academic one of the things I enjoy doing I'll, I'll watch a like historically based series and it'll be like alright let's see what the inconsistencies are <laughs> but I, yes. think, I think pretty much everybody in that family probably counts as a villain and yes. the, the new guy Prince Charles I know he's technically king now but he's, he's yeah. still prince to me Yes. Um, 
I could probably enjoy writing one for him just to marvel at all of the outlandishness of the British royal family. I watched the... Don't ask. I watched this, like, stream on YouTube of the royal funeral from when uh, Prince Philip died or whatever, and it just sent me on this morbid fascination of weird British royal family stuff. So that would be an opportunity to delve even further into that. Yes, absolutely. Which you would have to mention, which was a... Very bad Saturday Night Live skit, but I guess when the Camilla Parker Bowles tapes were released, he he said, "I want to live as a tampon in your trousers forever." Right. Which I I that's not good flirting. Um, no. <laughs> question four. Question four, which is another death question. What was I thinking when I circled this one? If there's a hell and you end up there, name one celebrity that you expect slash hope to meet. That I expect to meet. I don't know that I would say I would hope to meet any of them. Hmm. Celebrities are a topic that I'm like really woefully ignorant of. Mm. So uh, let's just say any of those like pervert actors that were creepy to their colleagues and like I the only reason I would hope to meet those would be so I could fight them because hopefully they still have fights in hell mm. but I would expect to see them there because they're bad yes they are yes all right last one this is a little nicer or a lot nicer question five you're almost through this what mundane daily activity gives you the most joy I like washing dishes which is a really pop unpopular mm. opinion mm. I, I enjoy it it's there's something relaxing about it and then you see the pile like shrink but that's not even the fun part of it for me I just enjoy like standing playing in water it's it's like a pleasant experience I don't think about it very often but then I do it and I'm like all right cool yeah no and it's it is also I think as someone with also I think is a somewhat active mind who gets into a lot of things to have like a low flow like flow cognition like just activity that you just flow through it's like vacation yeah. it's like brain vacation like exactly I, the reason why this house is clean is because i had a really crappy day teaching on wednesday Relatable. and i was like i'm gonna come home and i just need to not i'm just wiping i'm wiping things i shall wipe things and then there will be no more wiping. Right. And, and it's I will simple. feel better. Yes. It's simple and you feel like you accomplished something, but you didn't really have to think about accomplishing it and you didn't have to go through different stages, which I think is nice. It's simple. You like turn the water on, you soap the dish, you rinse it, you like set it off to dry, but it's not, so it's a process, but it's not a process with like a lot of different steps that you have to think about, which is nice because pretty much everything else I do has a million steps that you do need to think about a lot. Yes. So... And there's no peer review. Exactly. There is no... There's no... Well, there's generally no feedback of any sort. I mean, if you know, there's, <laughs> there's no stakes. If I only wash half the dish and I see it's dirty later, I just put it back in there and nobody's going to send me an angry email about it. Yes, absolutely. No revise and... I guess you can choose your own revise and resubmit, which is what exactly. you just did there. Yes. All right. <laughs> well, I think that's about it. Our next episode will eventually happen, and um, it'll be about something. Uh, our homepage, where you can find new and old episodes, is gonna die podcast.com. 
We're on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts, and anything that piggybacks on those three services. Our only social media page is Facebook. I guess I should get an Instagram and take a picture of me and the guest, but I don't want to do that. So we're not going to. Uh, special thanks to Andrew Fox for our lovely theme music. Thank you so much for our guest, Dr. Hazel. Thank you so much. That was so fascinating. I learned so much about something I know very little about. Thank you for the invitation. It was really fun. Brad, I'm glad. It's the narcissistic pleasure of being interviewed. I offer, That's the only thing I have to offer, really. Uh, but there will also be links to uh, the, the, the Tumblr, to the Instagram, anything else you want to provide me with, I'll throw in the description. Later, meets.